Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Romans 4, verses 1 through 8, and verses 23 through 25. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks to the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, Good morning. Um, As Doran mentioned, my name is Steve. I go by Steve-O, uh, so any friend of mine calls me Steve-O, and that's actually my preference. Uh, my wife is here with me, my kids. My wife is Kendra, for those who don't know, and I've got twins, uh, 10-year-olds that are Karis and Judah, uh, and early on, uh, a church in Atlanta called them the Twangs for Twin Yangs, so, so if, if you can help bring that over here, that would be great. Um, Chris asked me to preach. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a semi-retired uh, Presbyterian minister. Uh, I started off in, in Atlanta back in 2007, 2009. And then, y- y- yes, that'd be great. Thank you, sweet. Um, and then uh, I, in 2013, I became a nurse recruiter. And I went bi- bivocational for a while. Thank you, sweetie. Uh, in Boston, uh, most, our most recent stop. And uh, now I just do nurse recruiting, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, we've been here since spring of last year, and uh, we've been here at this church uh, for about six months now. So thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Uh, so if you can, uh, what I used to do in my church in Atlanta and in Boston, it was I would have uh, the congregation pray for me uh, just, to, just for a second as I would pray for you, and then I'll, I'll, I'll start us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for your spirit to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear your beauty. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. May the voice of my Heavenly Father outvolume anything I might hear so that I can just be here and just enjoy your pleasure for me. 
And I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. For those of, you, for those of us here who don't know you, uh, we pray that maybe you bring somebody to faith for the first time. For those of us who have been walking, uh, maybe it's been a while since we've tasted that joy. We ask that you would give us that afresh again today. Only you can do this. Not words, only your spirit. So we ask for that very gift. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. One of the best war movies I've ever seen is Saving Private Ryan. It tells a story of a poor mother who lost three of four sons in World War II. And in order to prevent her from losing all four sons, a squad of eight men are given the mission to rescue this one man, bring him home to his mother. It's a mission that doesn't make mathematical sense. And Captain Miller, who, asked, who was asked to lead this mission, finds resentment boiling over. He says, this one man better be worth it. He better go home and cure a disease. He better go home and invent a longer-lasting light bulb. The mission to save Ryan succeeds, but everyone on the rescue squad dies on the mission. In perhaps the most dramatic scene of the movie, we find Captain Miller mortally wounded, and Ryan moves in to hear his last words. He says, James, earn this. Earn this. At the end of the movie, we flash 60 years into the future where James Ryan is an old man. And when it comes to the headstone of John Miller, he drops to his knees and he cannot contain his tears. He says, every day, I think about what you said to me on that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. Ryan then turns to his wife and says, Tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. We see that for the majority of his life, James Ryan has been haunted by this question is the question of justification. Did I get a passing grade in my life? Will I be judged a failure? Have I done enough? You see, that question of justification is the question that lurks underneath all our questions and pursuits, all our hopes and fears. Have I done enough? Have I lost enough weight? Have I done well for myself? Will I find a soulmate? Will I leave enough behind for those I love? When we come to Romans chapter 4, we find that the Apostle Paul comes to the the question of justification and how it can be attained. He argues that it must come as a gift and is meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be enjoyed sometime in the distant future or at the end of our lives, but it's meant to be enjoyed now in the present time. It's meant to change us, to give us freedom, rest, and joy. Does that characterize us this morning? Freedom, rest, and joy. 
Are we enjoying God's gift like that? Or do we find ourselves working harder but enjoying life less? Do we find ourselves resentful, exhausted, and apprehensive? The Apostle Paul wants to bring us good news. And so I want to organize my thoughts into two main questions that I hope to answer today. First, how do we spoil God's gift? If we don't find ourselves enjoying it, then why not? And secondly, how do we enjoy God's gift? How do we spoil God's gift? And then how do we enjoy it? First, how do we spoil God's gift? Paul would say that we're not enjoying God's gift because we're trying to earn it. Paul knows that a gift, by definition, is free. The moment a gift is earned, it is no longer a gift, but it's a paycheck. Romans 4, verses 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Paul contrasts a gift with an obligation or with a paycheck. When an employee clocks in and out, he gets paid. Now, if, someone, if something is earned, then it matters what we put into it. Now, if something is a gift, then whether I succeed or fail makes no relevance. Paul, what are you talking about? That doesn't sound right. Paul, are you telling me that the question of justification, the question of righteousness, the question of whether or not I am enough and I have done enough can only be answered sufficiently when it comes to us as a gift. Paul is saying that it has to. It can only be enjoyed as a gift. Paul has just spent the first three chapters of Romans diagnosing the human race, coming to the conclusion that we are without exception, all flawed, all lost, and hopeless in and of ourselves. And if we insisted on keeping the score then we would all fail. The score is not our friend. The gift has to come freely, and only when it's free can it be enjoyed. Do you guys know how hard it is to give and receive gifts? Like a true gift. Even Santa Claus. We tell our children, Santa Claus comes down our chimneys, and he showers little kids with gifts. But what did a song, what does the song t- teach us? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. And we know what this means. Good kids, good kids get toys. Bad kids get a lump of coal. Santa, this Santa, is not actually a giver of gifts. He's in the business of handing out rewards and punishment. Who knew the guest preacher would have the ability to ruin Christmas in July? But all that to make the point that a gift, a true gift, is really quite foreign. And even in the closeness of relationships, we see some sort of quid pro quo. I scratch your back, you scratch my back, you earned it, or just give me something back in return later. But Paul says, the gift of justification... The gift of righteousness, the gift of passing the grade is not anything we deserve, is not anything we can earn, it is not something we can work towards. 
is not going to come by getting into the right school. It's not going to come by being in the right relationship. It's not going to come on graduation day or promotion day. Does this gift of God sound liberating? Or do we prefer a paycheck? It's a fair question. A true gift where keeping score doesn't matter? Well, we don't know what to do with that. We insist on keeping score, and so we don't enjoy the gift. Are we enjoying the gift? Are we enjoying freedom, rest, and joy as God intended? Or are we more scorekeepers? What are some indications? What are some indications that we are scorekeepers? First indicator that we might be scorekeepers is resentment. Resentment. We are resentful because we don't feel good about our paychecks. We live in a conditional world where we get what we put in. If we turn on the switch, then we get the light. If we put in two quarters, then we get a candy bar. If we eat the spinach, then we get the pudding. If we study, then we pass the test. If we do the job, then we get paid. So why is it that after we follow all the right steps, and after we check off all the right boxes, and after we pull the lever, we're constantly left disappointed? It's because our relationship with God is like that of a collections agency. He owes us, and he's obligated. We don't deserve to still be single. We don't deserve to have our peers leapfrog over us at work. We don't deserve to have this lingering health issue. And so when God isn't keeping his end of the bargain, we get resentful. Second indicator that we might be scorekeepers is exhaustion. First is resentment. Second is exhaustion. We're exhausted because our relationship with God is like that of an employee. And an employee is someone who puts in good work because that's how you keep score. If we want to stand out, then we're expected to come in earlier, stay later, and do what others aren't willing to do. And for those of you who don't know what I do for work, I am a nurse recruiter. And at my work in health recruitment, we are constantly judged by how many phone calls we make, how many nurses we employ, how much we produce for the company. We have different colored shovels that act as trophies as employees earn silver shovel, gold shovel, Black shovel, platinum shovel. And when I first started, all I wanted was a silver shovel. If I got the silver shovel, then I'd be happy. And the problem was, you had to earn the silver shovel within the first year. And when I didn't do it, but some of my other colleagues did, that fueled the fire. And so I was determined that I would work harder until I got the gold shovel. Except when I got the gold shovel, it wasn't enough. I needed the black shovel. And then I needed the platinum. John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men in history, was once asked, how much money is enough? His response, just a little bit more. Paul knows that the higher we climb, the longer the ladder gets. First indicator that we might be scorekeepers is, exhaust, is, is resentment. Second is exhaustion. Third indicator is apprehension. Apprehension. 
For those who don't know, like I said, I'm a semi-retired Presbyterian minister. And people ask if the nerves get any better when I speak in front of people. And if I'm being honest, no matter how many times I do it, I am terrified. What if I'm not going to be very good? What if I got nothing to say? What if I'm not clear? Before, I used to not have any notes. And uh, one time I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I would preach without notes. And one time I completely forgot what I was saying, where I was going. I had to walk up to my wife in front of hundreds of people and say, Honey, I forgot where I was going. Could you give me my manuscript? I was so frazzled that I had to read the manuscript as I'm doing now the rest of the way in front of hundreds of people. And so when Chris, Pastor Chris asked me to step in to preach while he was away, that fear came to mind. What if that happens again? Whether we're a pastor, a parent, a student, self-employed, or retired, we have a common thread. We judge ourselves in the same way. We're only as good as our last performance. We're only as good as our last sermon. We're only as good as the last presentation, our last paycheck, our last promotion. We're only as good as our last compliment, our last conversation. Any measure that hinges on our performance is dangerous. Because for every, if you do, you win, there's a, if you don't, you lose. And the measurement we throw out on our best performance only boomerangs back on our worst. And with so much at stake, how could we not be anxious people? We are resentful. We're exhausted. We are apprehensive. Paul has been arguing that keeping score is not our friend. Righteousness always eludes our best efforts. We keep on insisting score, and so we don't enjoy the gift. So how do we enjoy God's gift? I said there would be good news. How do we enjoy God's gift? Well, we have to own that a passing grade cannot come from within ourselves. We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. Why does private James Ryan look to his wife for comfort to tell him that he's a good man? It's because what's inside is not credit worthy. And so we have to look beyond ourselves. The gospel gives us a passing grade not by anything we do, but it comes from the outside. Not by works, but by faith in the performance of another. Actor Kevin Bacon tells a story of watching one of his own movies with a six-year-old son. They put in the movie Footloose in their home theater. And as they watched, his son was blown away. He never knew that his father was so capable. In his amazement, Kevin's son asked him, Dad, when you swung from the rafters of that building, how did you do that? Kevin said, oh, that wasn't me. That was a stuntman. Well, what's a stuntman? Well, someone who dresses like me and does stuff that I can't do. The son was confused but kept watching. And later his jaw drops and he bursts. Wow, you know that part of that movie where you spun around the gym bar, did that amazing twist and flip and you landed on your feet? How did you do that? Kevin said, oh, that wasn't me. That was my gymnastics double. What's a gymnastics double? Well, it's the guy who dresses in my clothes and does stuff that I can't do. And after some concerned silence, his son asked 
well, Dad, what did you do? And Kevin said, I'm just a guy who gets all the glory. I get all the credit. The gospel says that what we cannot do for ourselves, Christ did. He does all the stuff that we could not do, and he gives us all the credit. As if the performance was all ours. When God looks on our performance, he doesn't see someone who is flawed or powerless, but he sees someone who performed flawlessly. Christ's score is our score. Perfect and forever. Translation. We measure up not because of what's in here, but because we are credited righteousness from the outside. It, comes, it becomes ours by faith, and God puts the perfect score into our account. And to argue the point, Paul gives two exhibits. Exhibit A, Abraham, the greatest patriarch of all time. Nobody had a better reputation. Surely, he earned something. Paul says not so. We turn back time, and even before a single command was given, centuries before the law was given to him, and he gives him a promise that someone would come from his line to be a blessing to the world. And we are told that Abraham believed God, and God took that belief and put into Abraham's account righteousness. Because he was never given the opportunity to check off a single box. Abraham was never in a position to boast. Regardless of Abraham's success, he learned it wasn't about his score, and so he was able to enjoy the gift. And then Paul goes on to exhibit B, David. He quotes King David's own words in Psalm 51. It's a song that David wrote not after killing Goliath, or after being crowned king, but after failure. He has relations with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and tries to cover it up by killing her husband. And at David's very bottom, he found he was never in position to boast. Learned, he learned that he was never in position to boast, ever. And even in David's failures, he learned it wasn't about his own score. So he was able to enjoy the gift. Romans 4, 6-7. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed or happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Better translation, will never ever count against them. And if God is not counting score, then neither do we. Christ's score is our score. Perfect and forever. I grew up in a Christian home and grew up believing that regardless of what Jesus did for me, now it really was up to me to measure up. Somehow I had to prove my gratitude and I had to measure up to the expectations put on me by church or by my parents or by my peers. But no matter how many boxes I checked off, I could never find any rest, freedom, or joy. And then in my third year of college, I came to lose all hope in myself. And I became a Christian 
And it wasn't because I promised to try harder or to turn over a new leaf. But it was when I came to the end of myself. This is what I wrote. Sunday, February 22nd, 2004. Lord, thank you for joy. I am so joyful these days. Maybe it's because I have come to the grips that I am beyond hope morally and that Christ has paid for it all. Perhaps joy comes with that, understanding the gospel. April 21st, 2004. I know my track record. I know who I am. I don't deserve to be in the king's family. I got nothing on my resume. I really don't. But I have a hope. Not in something I did or purity I kept or sermon I preached, Bible study I led, or paper I've written. But my hope is unshakable, for it is in Him. The gospel levels the playing field between the selfish and the selfless, between the hardworking and the lazy, between the faithful and promiscuous. What room is there for pride or resentment when we have a credit that is not our own? What room is there for exhaustion or apprehension when our final grade doesn't hinge on us? Oh, what wonder how amazing we can enjoy this gift. We don't contribute anything to it, not before, not after. Not before, not after. Jesus never says on the cross, earn this. He never says it. He says, it is finished. Religion is spelled D-O. D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Christ's score is our score, perfect and forever. David Ireland was a family counselor who was diagnosed with neuromuscular disease. Eventually, he was unable to walk, forced into a wheelchair. David Ireland's wife became pregnant. And the doctors told David that most likely he would not survive to see the birth of his own child. And so David began to write letters to a child he did not know. And after David passed, these letters were collected and eventually published by his wife as letters to an unborn child. In one of his letters... He writes about his wife, and this is what he writes. Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, what it entails, what it does for us. It means that she, need, she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable. Fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car, and drive off to the restaurant. And then... It starts all over again. She gets out of the car, 
unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedal out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out of the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's all over, finished, with real warmth, she'll say, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. I never quite know what to answer. What can we do for God that he hasn't already done for us? What credit can we earn than one that we already have? Christ's score is our score, perfect and forever. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you delight in us. Thank you for helping me get through that. And I ask that you would put together the pieces where I feel like I failed. And I pray that you would be enough for us now. Give us faith. Give us this Holy Spirit to connect the dots, to warm our hearts, to respond appropriately in praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.